Our message this afternoon is going to be in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and I'll be reading in verses 17 to 29. John chapter 5, 17 through 29, although we may not get all the verses in, but we'll do the best we can. John chapter 5, verse 17 But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son in the same manner. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and giveth them life, even so the Son giveth life to whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father who hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment, also because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Shall we pray? Loving Father, We do thank you for the reading of the scriptures this afternoon. We thank you that you give us this view of Christ, that he is equal with the Father, the reaffirmation of the Lord Jesus being the true Christ, the the true anointed of God, the true Messiah of God. And we're thankful, Father, that he came for this express purpose, that he might redeem his people from their sin. And Father, we do thank you that he is God in the flesh, revealing himself as God, showing that he came to die for the sins of the world, and that he came to do the will of the Father, and that there is life in him, life everlasting, and that he uh, says of a truth that he that heareth the words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Lord, we praise you and ask your blessing now. 
In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, this afternoon, then, we'll be looking at these key verses here that have to do with Jesus' claim of equality with the Father. And, of course, these, uh, these admissions of the Lord Jesus that he makes in the presence of these uh, Jewish uh, leaders, uh, these men who would persecute Christ, are uh, quite startling, to say the least because we know that for him to make such a claim was only to add fuel to the fire, so to speak, concerning their desire to uh, pursue him, to persecute him. Three areas we will be looking at this afternoon. First of all, the Jews pursued Jesus to persecute him. Uh, they, they wanted to, to silence uh, the Lord. Uh, the things that he was saying were just too radical for them to... Uh, allow to continue and um, here is the son of God the son of man and that he has now come into the world and he is beginning to show himself for who he truly is and to do this it meant saying things that would shake up the religious establishment of the day uh, Judaism and of the religious ceremonial system uh, which uh, had been frankly perverted uh, to a great degree, uh, and uh, they, those who were Jewish leaders and uh, officials should have recognized Christ for who he was, but they did not. And uh, so now, because of his statements and the things that he was saying, uh, they were pursuing him to persecute him in persecution of him. That is, they wanted to kill him. Uh, that uh, at this time, uh, Jesus would not allow them to lay hands on him. Uh, secondly, Jesus claims equality with the Father. And we see in this extended period here, basically from verse 17 to 24, uh, that this equality that he has with the Father is set forth in a very dramatic way. Uh, in fact, as we read some of these uh, statements that he makes, he makes no bones about it. He comes right out and says that he, he is doing the will of the Father. What the Father does, he will do. And if the Father re gives power to resurrect life, he has power to resurrect life. If the Father says uh, that he is to do some particular thing and to have power over judgment, then he has power over judgment. Um, the very things that belong to God, Jesus is claiming for himself. And um, that he is equal with the Father. And, of course, the Jews have no mistake about it. They know exactly what he is saying. Uh, and to allow this, of course, is um, uh, for the Jewish people, the Jewish religious people, it would be uh, to make a serious admission that Jesus was truly the Christ. And they were not about to do this. Um, they found it as an undermining of their own religious system. Uh, they, they believed that Jesus was influencing the, the people around him, the crowds, the populace, and uh, the statements that uh, he was making were against national Judaism. Uh, as a national people, it would be tantamount to being treasonous for him to say these things uh, that he is saying. Um, and so... Um, what does Jesus end up doing? Uh, and basically he reproves the Jews for hatred, pride, and unbelief. Uh, the hatred uh, of the Jewish 
of these Jewish leaders especially was that they wanted to kill him. The pride of the Jewish people was that they believed that that they had all the answers and that their religious system was uh, intact and they, they wanted to keep it that way. And they were right and Jesus was wrong. And uh, they were willing to completely ignore the prophecies concerning Christ and ignore the the prophet John the Baptist, if, uh, if necessary, uh, to maintain their religious order and control over the people. Um, and, of course, the unbelief is pretty uh, obvious since we see that the hatred and the pride of the religious leaders was, in effect, unbelief to that Jesus was truly the Son of God uh, and that he had come to accomplish the things that he was saying. And so we'll look at this a little more closely um, this afternoon. So, uh, uh, first of all, uh, we might say here is a terrible exposure of the wicked heart of man. That is, the Savior had come to perform uh, these great acts of healing, and these Jews were infuriated because that Jesus was doing these very things. Now, we know what he did previous in these verses. Uh, he healed this man um, at the pool of Bethesda, and uh, this man had been, of course, uh, incapacitated in his, uh, in his uh, paralytic condition for a great many years, and more than Jesus was alive. It was before his birth, even, that he became in this condition. And so now, uh, after these many years, uh, Jesus heals him at this pool. This pool that was considered to be a, a pool of some mercy, evidently. Uh, that an angel at a certain season of time came down and stirred the waters at this pool of Bethesda. And uh, that is, though there were many uh, people who were there gathered about the pool, and uh, this was a pool, there might have been approximately two pools kind of connected somehow, and it was a, a water duct system, an aqueduct system, where it was near the sheep market, and uh, so it was used in, in conjunction with the temple, perhaps, in the various sacrifices that were necessary, that water was needed, and uh, these five porches that were situated, or a colonnade of, of porches which are covered, uh, were uh, populated by these people who were very sick. And some of them, as with this man, his, uh, his paralytic condition had been with him for some 38 years. And, and um, so we find that uh, these people were very much in need. And Jesus coming to Jerusalem and... Uh, uh, coming perhaps at the Feast of Pentecost, though it is uncertain what this, what this feast is, but it's more likely that it was the Feast of Pentecost, since John doesn't say that precisely that it was the Passover, uh, which would be a yearly significant feast, which probably would not go without mentioning. So probably it was a lesser feast, such as the Feast of Pentecost, and we find that Jesus comes by this pool where many of these people were. Now remember, Jesus is, is, uh, uh, going about uh, contacting people that were otherwise uh, kind of left to themselves. That is, the Samaritan woman that he had met previously uh, was not a woman that Jesus, uh, any of the Jews would have gone and so associated with. 
Um, and so she is the, the unwanted, um, part of the unwanted populace, uh, the unloved populace of her day. And, of course, Jesus had a great impact on her life. And then Jesus had a great impact on the, um, on the uh, courtier, the, the nobleman from Herod Antipas, and how that he came while Jesus was in Galilee, and, and um, he finds that he is, uh, Jesus is, is uh, hears this man out. He comes to Jesus in kind of a, probably a last hope situation. Uh, and this, uh, this nobleman hears about Christ, and he's probably a Jew, but remember, um, uh, not all Jews would have probably taken a job with Herod Antipas. Uh, he's not exactly the, the person one would want to go and get employment with. Um, and so he's kind of on the fringe as well. And, and this, uh, this nobleman asks Jesus, if he could heal his son who had this terrible fever and uh, that he was sure that he was going to die unless there was some intervention. And so it is that uh, Jesus uh, uh, heals him. He heals him. Uh, The man wanted him to come to his house and do the healing, but Jesus says, your son is made whole. And so the man returns home and his servants come to meet him, greet him, and, and they find out, yes, he is uh, relieved of his fever. Yes, he is uh, truly um, uh, now healed. And so Jesus encounters these kinds of people. So when he comes to the pool of Bethesda and he, he meets this paralytic man who from, for some 30 years plus that he, is, he has been in this condition, he has no hope of getting to the pool. No hope. And it's on the Sabbath day. What is Jesus going to do? What is he going to do? But it is the way of God that God reaches out to those to show mercy and grace unto those who are in need. And Jesus, yes, Jesus chooses to show mercy unto this man. Uh, how many of us realize that Jesus has, has chosen to show mercy unto us? Jesus has shown mercy to each of us. And it is because he has chosen to do so. We should, we should have no uh, misgivings about this fact. We have not in, other, in any way merited the mercy and grace of God. We have not merited it. Not at all. The scripture doesn't say that whatsoever. We find that God intervenes into the life of those who are miserable and poor and naked and needing salvation, needing forgiveness. And Jesus, when he meets this man, he doesn't even ask him, would you like to have your sins forgiven? He doesn't ask him that. He he says, do you want to be made whole? The wholeness of God and his mercy and grace touches every part of the person's life. It touches every part. And for Jesus to show the miraculous nature of him being the true Christ, he was willing to expose himself and say, yes, I will make you whole if you are willing to be whole. I will make you whole because I am a God of mercy. I am from my Father who is in heaven, and the works my Father do, I do, and that I will extend mercy to you. 
And so the, the fact that he extended mercy to him without the man requesting it shows the divine act of grace and mercy on the part of God. And we should remember that because that is the same thing that he has done toward us as well. And so we see here that uh, the exposure of these Jewish people was that they were more infuriated over the fact that Jesus broke the Sabbath in their mind and in their thinking than they were being glad that he healed a man who had been 30 plus years in a paralytic condition and God was willing to touch his life and to make him whole. But here is the deadness of religious ceremony. The deadness of religious ceremony does not care except to maintain its only dead religious condition. It only wants to maintain its religious works. It only wants to maintain its own system of ceremony and of religion, which is not life-giving, which does not show the grace of God, which does not reveal the mercy of God when people are in need. And so we find that um, the law forbade menial work on the Sabbath day, but it did not prohibit the performance of acts of mercy by individuals. And so here is Jesus performing an act of mercy, but yet they attribute it to Jesus breaking the law because this man was made whole, and not only so, but, he, but Jesus told him to get up and to take his bed and go home, <laughs> to go his way, to do what he normally could not do. But they, these religious people of the day were full of unbelief and pride and hatred toward others, especially the Lord at this time. So having finished uh, this work which God gave him to do, they condemned Jesus for it. So the Jews pursued Jesus to persecute him. Secondly, we see that Jesus claims equality with the Father. Jesus claims equality with the Father. Verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Now this is interesting. Um, he says, my father works and I work. Uh, and here is, uh, here is the sense that the religious people of the day uh, said there is a prohibition on working. Uh, but God says, um, I am the, the God of the Sabbath, not man. And I can say what needs to be done and what does not need to be done. And Jesus says, my father works in heaven. He, he is doing his work. And... Uh, I also am come to do the work of the Father. Uh, verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So now there were two strikes against him. 
One commentator has made this observation. Having finished the work of creation in six days, God had rested on the seventh day. This was the Sabbath. However, when sin entered the world, God's rest was disturbed. He would now work ceaselessly to bring men and women back into fellowship with him. He would provide a means of redemption. He would send out the gospel message to every generation. Thus, from the time of Adam's fall up to the present time, God has been working ceaselessly. And he is still working. The same was true of the Lord Jesus. He was engaged in his father's business, and his love and grace could not be confined to only six days of the week. And so we find that uh, God truly did not stop his work, as it were, um, after the creation. But we know that God, how does God cease to be God though he has created in six days and says, on the seventh day I'm done creating, and therefore I will, call, I will call it a Sabbath day rest. But obviously God doesn't cease to be God. Uh, God doesn't wind up the world and set it on a shelf and allow it to tick its way into oblivion. That's uh, called deism. The deists of the early fathers, such as Franklin, Benjamin Franklin and others, um, probably Jefferson as well. I mean, he cut up the Bible and made his own little scripture text, and those were the only passages he thought much of. The rest of it he didn't care for. Well, a deist looks at God quite a bit differently than what you and I would. We see God as the sovereign creator of the universe, and he hasn't stopped being God just because he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh from his creation. No, God still uh, is very much involved in creation. In fact, uh, it says of Jesus Christ that by him all things are held together. And we find that so Jesus, Jesus himself being God, Uh, He's very much uh, active in the work that God sent him to do and to accomplish. And so the God of creation is working. And so is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he came to earth to reveal himself to be the true Christ, his claims of equality with the Father would set about to infuriate the hearts of people. I would challenge you to, to do this. If you really want to prove this point, go to your best friend who doesn't know the Lord and begin to emphatically make claims to that person of how Jesus is God and how Jesus is equal with the Father in heaven and how Jesus is working the works of creation and of salvation. In other words, make those claims as emphatically as the Scriptures Say them to the best friend that you have who isn't a believer and find out whether or not you cause that person to be mad with you. And because it will only condemn the person if you emphatically make these statements saying that your sins will not be forgiven unless you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That you will go to hell if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
that when you die, there is going to be a resurrection and you will either be resurrected to eternal life or you will be resurrected to eternal damnation. If you make such claims that Jesus needs to be sought after to have true salvation and life eternal, abundant life here, but life eternal after death, you will infuriate somebody. Just as the Jews were infuriated, because what does it do? It challenges the belief system of the person that you are talking to. You see, everybody does have a belief system. It may be somewhat confused, a belief system that is somewhat confused, somewhat unorganized. It may be solely based on the fact, well, oh, I believe this or I believe that or I don't know. It must be this. God is too good to do anything bad. And certainly he wouldn't send anybody to hell. And after all, he loves everybody and we're all God's children. It may be somewhat of a similar belief system that is quite confused and generalized and really doesn't have any basis of truth in it, at least in the scripture, just in their own mind, you see. But when you begin to challenge somebody's belief system with some emphatic truth, truth that says this is what God says, This is how it's going to be. This is the word of God. You must be saved. You make emphatic statements like that and you're going to make people very angry. Well, Jesus was doing this. He was making these kinds of statements. And it was making those Jewish people very angry, especially those religious rulers of the day. Uh, And so we see here in verse um, 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son in the same manner. So he's saying he is acting like the Father. He is doing the works of the Father. Whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does, because He is the Son of God. And so His his claim to sonship was to say that He was not like anybody else. No, that He was truly God. That He was the begotten of God. And that He was sent to the earth by God the Father came down to earth through the womb of Mary, conceived not of natural birth, but of supernatural birth, because it was the conception of the Holy Spirit of God. God the Holy Spirit brought conception upon Mary. None other, no human agent was involved. And we find that Jesus Christ came into the world, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Son of Man because that is in His humanity, he took upon himself human flesh. To came, he came to fulfill the very will and purpose of God. Son of God because he was born of God. The priority relationship that he had with God the Father was that he came forth from the Father. He came forth from the Father. Now these claims were just too much for the religious people of the day. Just as I say to you, it is too much for people to believe today as well. 
It is too much for them to believe. They will not believe these things unless the Spirit of God opens their hearts and minds and ears to the Scriptures. They will not believe it. And this is the, this is the difficulty we face, of course, as believers. We believe these things, and the unsaved world does not believe these things. They will bow before a cross. They will denuflect and give themselves a various... Uh, uh, merits of, uh, of ceremony. Uh, they will sprinkle water upon themselves and say that it is holy water. They will light candles and say that they did it for the dead and that they're praying for the dead and somehow they're making penance for the dead. Oh, they will do all kinds of things. They will take a loaf of bread and put it in front of a statue, uh, whether it's a Hindu statue or a Buddhist statue or some other god, and they think they were making some kind of oblation to this god, and they think that it is some kind of merit to them. Uh, is idolatry alive and well in the United States? I would like to have you look behind the picture the next time you see one on television of a person who was doing yoga. And you will find that many of the pictures of people doing yoga, you will find a Hindu statue, statue behind them. Or you will find a Buddhist statue behind them. Or that they will use a little Buddhist symbol like this. And they will, they will do this to the person in front of them. What is this? This is idolatry. This is, this is, this is idolatry is what it is. These people are idolaters. And this is, this is not uncommon in the world. There are many idolatrous countries in the world with thousands and if not millions of people who bow to statues and offer oblations to statues. Whether it be to the Virgin Mary uh, offering some Our Father peace offering uh, with their various beads which they're counting their prayers upon, or whether they're crawling upstairs of a cathedral on their knees, hoping to do some penance to, uh, to this, this statue, a statue of Mary, that it is idolatry. That is what it is. And, and of course, there are many others who are worshipping other philosophies which are idolatry, whether it's Mother Earth, or whether it's some New Age system of thought, these are all idolatrous practices, and we find that this is prevalent in our own society today. Very much prevalent. And yes, Jesus made claims of equality, but the equality with God the Father, but the difference was he was God. He was truly the Son of God. He is revealed in the scriptures as the Son of God. The Old Testament revealed him that he was promised to come, that he was the promised seed, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to God and that they would believe upon him. We find that Jesus' claims of equality with God the Father would set him on a course to be destroyed. <coughs> Excuse me. It would set him on a course of destruction because it would ultimately lead him to be crucified and to be killed as the Son of Man. 
Not as the Son of God. The Son of God did not die. The Son of Man died. God, you can't kill God. God can't cease to be God. Just because man in his worst acts of humanity uh, brought him to death upon a cross. No, Jesus suffered and died for our sins in a sacrificial way that he might make full atonement for our sins and satisfy the justice of God. And so it is, verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that he himself doeth, and he will do. Show him greater works, and he will do greater works than these, that ye may marvel. And of course, uh, that itself was a true statement as well. Jesus did do many great works, greater works than what he had done already. He would do greater works. He would raise Lazarus from the dead uh, four four days after he had died. Um, He would raise him from the dead. Now, of course, Lazarus would come forth from the grave, but he would have to die again. Uh, He wasn't resurrected unto eternal life. He was resurrected from his physical death unto physical life. And we find that Truly, these works were, true, were great. Uh, Jesus himself would forgive the sin of one who was dying beside him while he was on the cross. And say, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Greater works than these that ye may marvel. For the Father raises up the dead and giveth them life, even so the Son giveth life to whom he will. Even so, the Son giveth life to whom he will. And no doubt, this is probably predominantly saying, in effect, that God and the Son have the true power over everlasting life. Because we find that Not everybody is raised up physically from their grave. Jesus only raised a few people that way. Uh, A few prophets did something similar. God allowed them to do that. But we find that the one thing that sets God apart from all else is that he not only is able to give physical life, he is able to give eternal life. And we find that Jesus came to give eternal life to as many who would believe. As many as who would believe. And so we find that he makes a a clear statement of this in the next two verses or so. Let's continue reading with verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Here is another very strong statement of equality with the Father, that the Son has the authority of judgment. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father, so that honor, uh, honoreth, he that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father, but he who sent him. And so we find that we, as we honor the Father, we honor the Son. 
And the Son is worthy of that honor because he is equal with God, the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Now he makes a very clear and strong statement that to believe on the Son is to have everlasting life. And, of course, this is no simple belief. This is, this is true faith in God the Son as that one who was sent from God the Father. Uh, so it is that faith. It is called saving faith. <clears throat> it is faith that believes and trusts in God the Son for the forgiveness of sins. So we find that he makes these strong, very strong and emphatic statements and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 So to pass from death unto life, one has to pass from spiritual death unto eternal life. And only God the Son can do that. And we find that God means for all of us to know him in that same way. So even though this verse, verse 24, we might say is clearly um, embedded within the gospel of the New Testament, uh, it is also um, very much seated right now in the person and work of Jesus Christ as Jesus is emphatically declaring himself to be the Son of God, the true Messiah of God, the one who has come to redeem people from their sins. And of course, this is, this is something they could not quite grasp, perhaps, because they were, they were pretty much entrenched in animal sacrifices and in the priestly system, the sacerdotal system of the day. And we find that to believe anything else was tantamount to treason against their own national religion. And, of course, it is all because they were blinded by their own, their own religious beliefs. To say nothing about Satan blinding their minds, as we recognize that Satan does that kind of thing, he blinds people through religious ceremony. You take somebody who is, who is in, uh, truly involved in a lot of religious ceremony, it's hard to break out of that. I mean, how do you stop coming into a church and, and bowing before a cross and believing that somehow God is happy with you for doing that? Uh, how do you stop counting your prayers upon a string of beads that you have been taught to do from a child and think, well, oh, I don't have to do this anymore? when I've been told all my life that to say our Father and to pray certain prayers in rote or repetition is somehow meritorious to my spiritual life. And if I put myself in a certain posture or a form uh, and pray, then somehow God sees me in this particular posture and I'm supposed to be better for it. Or if I take a, a piece of wafer and put it on my tongue and believe that Jesus is the wafer, then that is somehow meritorious to who I am as being religious. 
And how does one stop being superstitious? How does one stop going to an idol and making some oblation? You see, how does one stop doing that? Well, they have to, they have to be radically changed. And uh, the, the Word of God tells about Jesus Christ, who came in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, that He came as the Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, that He is the very... He is the very incarnation of God and that He came to die for the sins of the world and to believe upon Him as being that true Messiah of God. One can know that their sins are completely forgiven and that God's grace and mercy has been showered upon that individual unto eternal life. Now, now that's a radical thing. That's a radical thing. You can take your beads and throw them away. You no longer have to take a wafer. You no longer have to kneel before a cross and think that's going to do something for you. What does it leave you with? It leaves you with faith and salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace, grace which is free, freely given and bestowed upon all who believe. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. This message of salvation and grace and mercy by the hand of God is so important to us as being believers, we can never overstate it. We cannot overstate it. And we must always live with that greater thought of the grace of God, the grace and mercy of God toward us, unmerited, unearned grace of God toward us. It is the only thing to believe. It will free you from every religious superstition you ever thought you had. And it will set you on a course where you truly will have liberty in Christ. Not to sin, but to follow the Lord in true faith and salvation. Yes, the religious rulers of the day were very upset with Jesus because he claimed equality with the Father, because he truly was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for your word to us and ask for your blessing, Father, that your word may sink deeply into our hearts and that we may desire above all things to follow in true faith and by the grace of God know of the free, unmerited work of God in our hearts that we are truly saved and children of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.